Welcome to the Land Ethic Podcast, dedicated to naturalism, conservation, and stewardship. I'm Dylan Banyasco, a landscape designer and outdoorsman from Central Texas. I'm learning from individuals and organizations that are working to improve our relationship with land. Subjects may range from regenerative agriculture to ethical hunting and wildlife management. Please subscribe on your preferred app and follow Land Ethic Podcast on social media for updates, episode releases, and more. Whit Fosberg is the president and CEO of the Theodore Roosevelt Conservation Partnership, an organization dedicated to advancing America's legacy of conservation, habitat, and access to public lands. Prior to joining TRCP in 2010, Whit spent 15 years at Trout Unlimited. Additionally, he served as fisheries director for the National Fish and Wildlife Foundation and was a wildlife specialist for the National Audubon Society. Witt grew up hunting and fishing in upstate New York and was a member of Team USA in the 97 World Fly Fishing Championships. He has a BA in government from Georgetown University and a master's from the Yale University School of Forestry. We talked all about TRCP and their various areas of focus, from the Farm Bill to the Colorado River to chronic wasting disease and deer species. I get to hear from some really influential and impressive conservationists, and I think Witt and the TRCP are some of the best out there. They're keeping the spirit and vision of Teddy Roosevelt and the early American conservation movement alive by leveraging the voice of outdoor enthusiasts to influence policy. Visit their website at trcp.org for more. You can sign up for their newsletter to stay informed on these issues and consider a donation to help the cause. Lastly, thanks to everyone who entered the Oppenel giveaway on Instagram to celebrate a year of the Land Ethic Podcast, and congratulations to Dalton from Texas on winning. Look for more of those in the future. Spring is in the air. I'm recovering from ACL surgery. Can't wait to get outside and go fishing on the river and uh, enjoy some hiking this summer. I hope you're all taking some time to slow down, get outdoors, and enjoy Mother Nature. On to the interview with Wit. Okay, I'm joined today by Whit Fosberg of Teddy Roosevelt, well, Theodore Roosevelt Conservation Partnership. Whit, how are you doing? Doing great, Dylan. How are you? Great, great. I'm really uh, glad that you agreed to do this because I've paid attention to your organization for a little while, and um, I've heard you on other podcasts. I've read some of your work, so this is a pleasure for me. Well, thank you. Um, feelings mutual. In fact, I was just listening to some of your podcasts coming up here and just finished the one... Uh, with Chris Tompkins, which was fascinating. Oh, thanks. Yeah, yeah, she's amazing. She is amazing. Well, man, in the last few days, I've really been digging in to TRCP, and I'm blown away by the scope of your work and um, all of your the issues that you all advocate for. I think I'd like to use this time with you to introduce my listeners who may not be familiar with TRCP, not only to what you all do, but to a lot of the issues that are taking place kind of, I don't want to say behind the scenes, but maybe these are things that your average um, outdoorsman may not even realize is happening. So I've kind of pulled a list of some of your uh, your advocacy issues, and I'd like to ask you about some of those. But to start off, could you kind of give us an overview of TRCP, when it was founded, and, and what your mission is as a group? 
Yeah, so you're not the only person that, you know, there's a lot of folks who really don't know about us. And, you know, that's okay because that's kind of intentional with the way we were structured. So we were created 20 years ago by a fellow named Jim Range. And Jim was chief counsel to Howard Baker, who at that time was a Senate majority leader under Reagan. Uh, Jim and Baker both came from Johnson City, Tennessee, old school conservation minded hunting and fishing Republicans back at a time when conservation was not a partisan issue. And Jim became you know, frustrated with how irrelevant the hunting and fishing community had become in federal policy. If you go back to the time of Theodore Roosevelt, it was really the hunters and anglers in this country that created the modern conservation system. You know, Boone and Crockett Club, created by Roosevelt in 1887, was the first of the modern conservation groups among other things, set out to you know, stop the market hunting in this country and then begin thinking about how do we protect habitats. Yeah. And look at the, all the early conservation groups, Wildlife Management Institute, the Wildlife Society, National Wildlife Federation, Isaac Walton League. They were all sort of very broad in scope about conservation broadly. They weren't about any one species, any one geography, but just to reestablish a conservation system that you know, they saw in danger of disappearing. Mm -hmm. And um, in the, you think about, you know, the 1930s was the first of the species groups, and that was Ducks Unlimited. And then you had Trout Unlimited come in the 50s and Elk Foundation, Pheasants Forever, Turkey Federation, Elk Foundation, I mean, I mentioned them. But just every game species today has got multiple nonprofits that yeah. have done amazing work to bring those species back. You think about the fact that ducks, you know, people are afraid they were going to go extinct, a lot of them back in the 1930s. And during the depression, it was duck hunters that created a tax. So every time you buy guns, ammunition, and that was expended to fishing equipment later, you pay into a federal trust fund that then pays back out to the states for conservation. You know, the duck stamp was created at that same time during the depression because hunters realized they had to pay in if they wanted this resource conserved. And so that really formed the model you know, we call the North American model for conservation. And it's, you know, the hunters and anglers have had a big part in that. We pay into that system and we have the best managed fish and wildlife in the world. And it's been a tremendous success. Now, the downside of how we've evolved is those species groups, which did such amazing work of bringing back those species collectively, everyone took their eye off of federal policy. And so you had a situation where environmental community was moving you know, further left, becoming more litigious, more democratic leaning. The gun community was moving further right, becoming more litigious, becoming more Republican oriented. Right. And, you know, Jim Range felt that that sensible center that had always been occupied by a sporting community had been vacated. And so he wanted to bring, get create a group that brought all those groups together to speak on a common voice on issues that were too big for any one group. Federal land policy, energy policy, agricultural policy, marine fisheries policy, conservation funding, Climate change would be a classic example right now, but no one group can tackle these things. It really requires a coalition. And today we have 61 different groups under our broad umbrella. And that range from the usual suspects of Ducks Unlimited and Trout Unlimited and Mule Deer Foundation and Fezzes Forever to you know, Hispanic Access Foundation and Minority Outdoor Alliance to trade associations, outdoor industry association, archery trade association, American Sport Fishing Association, AFL-CIO, because 70% of their 12 million members hunt and fish. Yeah. So it is very much the coalition, the willing. Um, we 
all of our work can be divided up into five broad issue areas, um, which are public lands, private lands, water, marine fisheries, and climate. Each of those areas has got a senior staff person running it, and then working groups made up of all those other nonprofits that care about that issue. You know, for example, on you know our agriculture working group, you know, it's about 25 different groups that really care about the farm bill. Hmm. You know, and that we got that may not include you know like a marine fisheries group, and uh, similarly our marine fisheries working groups are you know trying to you know, protect the forage base for oceans. You know, Pheasants Forever is probably not going to be represented on that. So you know, it's the coalition of the willing. All we ask, no one pays dues. We just ask them to roll up their sleeves, and work together on a common purpose. And it's been you know incredibly successful. You know, I would argue in the last decade, it's probably been the most important for conservation since the late 1960s, early 1970s. And that is, I think, in you know large part because our community got us act together, and started speaking in a common you know, you know common voice. And our issues are ones that are not going to be Democratic or Republican. They're going to be doesn't matter what party you are. You might love to hunt and fish and care about conservation and. There's plenty to disagree about in Washington, D.C., but conservation should not be one of those things. And so as a result, you know, we tend to put our partners ahead of us in terms of name recognition and credit, uh, which is fine. I mean, I want Ducks Unlimited and, you know, the Coastal Conservation Association and others to get the credit for these things. And, uh, you know, at the same time, I think all of these groups know that if we're successful, they're going to be successful, too. Yeah. Do you have times when maybe an affiliate group will bow out of a certain issue because they're like, oh, this doesn't, this is not in the best interest of mule deer. So this is not our thing. Absolutely. All the time. Yeah. So we just basically agree to disagree on certain things and we're going to park those at the door and we're going to work on the 80 or 90% of things we do agree on. And, uh, you know, being a part of underneath our umbrella doesn't mean that we're not going to have our own positions. I mean, we take positions that you know, the Mule Deer Foundation or the Nature Conservancy, you know, may not agree with, and that's fine. And they'll do the same with us. But majority of the time we see eye to eye. I love how it's structured because I think it is, as you said, in the best interest of supporting the North American model. You're not, you're not focusing on one species and cherry picking your issues. You're saying, you know, in that essence, you're not losing the forest for the trees. You're focusing on the forest. I'm wondering at this point in time, we're, uh, we're in this new administration, have been for a while. What are some of the biggest areas of momentum that you all are feeling uh, in the conservation world at, at the federal policy level that you really feel like we can build on right now? So we had a huge win in the fall when the bipartisan infrastructure law passed. Mm-hmm. And you, you normally think about infrastructure as you know, roads and bridges, um, maybe a, you know, a port someplace. But in this particular case, we define, we managed to get infrastructure defined much more broadly. So we can talk about natural infrastructure, restoring wetlands and coastal barrier islands as opposed to just raising levees. Uh, you know, reconnecting migration corridors, including passages over and under highways, you know, where you know, animals were getting killed and people were getting killed too. Yeah. And that's the specific program of this infrastructure bill. So you can go all over the place and you know, it's billions of dollars for conservation that has multiple benefits, not just from species, but also from, in the case of migration corridors, you know, people who drive cars, insurance industry. But then if you think about, you know, some of the you know, forest work or you know, coastal work or wetland restoration work, 
mean, huge benefits from clean water to, you know, flood suppression, you know, all of that kind of stuff that we need. So I say that's a huge opportunity now. And a lot of what we're focusing on is making sure that money hits the ground running. The last thing we want to do is have, you know, a year or two from now, it's still sitting in some agency's coffer, not having been put on the ground. And then all of a sudden people in Congress say, why do we provide all this money if you guys can't even spend it? Yeah. So a lot of what we're doing right now is, um, hey, listen, you don't need to reinvent the wheel here. We have a ton of programs in this country that we know work, and we have right decades of success stories. Supersize those, get more money into them, get more technical assistance, and you know, make that the focus as opposed to thinking up some cool new idea that you can brand as your own. So I'd say that's one opportunity. I think another one to go a little bit more granular that I mentioned is you know, migration and corridors. I mean, the, the science around how animals move has changed dramatically in the last 15, 20 years, I mean, largely because of you know, satellite tracking capabilities. So we know that you know, the mule deer in Wyoming run from the Red Desert to the Hoback, yeah. you know, 130, 150 miles. You know, we know where the pronghorn go now. We know, you know in, in the east, it may be things like reptiles and amphibians, which have a smaller range, but they still need to move. And so there's been a you know a ton of momentum behind that, and this is one of those programs that you know we started focusing on during the Obama administration. Then the Trump guys came in, and to their credit, they didn't toss it out. They actually you know really stood it up and built on it. And then the Biden folks came in, and same thing. You know, it'd been easy to say, well, this was a Trump thing that they really stood up, so we're going to get rid of it. Yeah. They didn't. In fact, last week, Secretary of the Interior Holland announced an expansion of it, and that's what we want to see. We want to create programs that are durable. And that lasts more than four years because as we've seen with a bunch of stuff in this country, when you change administrations, if you don't do that spade work and make it durable, it's going to be gone. And you start from scratch once again. Yeah, that was something I, I was interested in that that seesaw often, um, unfortunately, environmental issues are, are often victim to that and get tossed away. I think, you know, there have been some some things that have endured. A lot of people don't know that. Uh, Donald Trump Jr. is actually a huge sportsman and an advocate for a lot of these issues, which may be surprising to some people, but it seemed like he kind of was whispering in his dad's ear a little bit and managed to get some good things done. Yeah, I mean, I think there was some truth to that. And I also think that our community, you know, we recognized, you know, we we knew who we were dealing with and we were trying to find things that they could support. And they made it very clear from the beginning that they wanted to do things for the hunting and fishing community. And so things like big grain migration corridors became a no-brainer. I mean, you have you know charismatic megafauna. You have a ribbon cutting every time you cross a highway, and you have to the undercross or overcross. And I think that you know this is just well suited to what they were trying to do. And you have to be a little bit nimble, a little bit creative to come in because you know sort of pounding on things like climate change at that time just weren't going to work. Mm-hmm. Now we can pivot a little bit now and talk more about climate and some of the things we can do. And I think as we look forward, that's another huge opportunity. I think that, you know, climate is pretty much bottled up in the politics of Congress right now. But one of the things that I think you're going to see the majority can agree on is the land and water side. The only thing that sucks carbon out of the air are things that grow. And so that means better managed forests. That means more farmland and conservation. That means more wetlands, which are huge carbon sinks. So, and by the way, all those things are great for hunting and fishing. Yeah. So to the extent that, you know, that is an issue that can transcend the politics of climate, you know, we're going to be there and we are promoting it right now as opportunities. And now we're seeing bills coming in from Republicans and Democrats in that space. And so I think that's going to be another place where we can have real momentum. 
And we may not do what we need to do in terms of reducing emissions, but we can certainly make a head start on sucking a lot of that carbon out of the air and improving water quality and improving wildlife habitat. When a bill comes across your desk, uh, let's say the infrastructure bill, when you get wind of that, I, forgive my ignorance, um, how do you all act? What's your strategy to getting that language in there that's, for example, going to going to include natural infrastructure, as you said? You know, how do you insert your best interests in that process? So it was very clear that infrastructure was going to be one of those issues that also tends to transcend politics. It doesn't matter if you're a Republican or Democrat, you want to bring home the bacon, you want to you know, fix up that road, that interstate, that harbor. And so as soon as the Trump guys came into office, you know, we stood up a coalition and started doing videos and created websites about you know, both you know, getting people back to work through conservation, but also you know, that natural infrastructure being, if you're going to do infrastructure, make it this stuff because it's cheaper, it's more, more durable. I mean, if you think about green infrastructure versus what they call gray infrastructure, gray infrastructure works best the day it is built and it starts deteriorating then. Yeah. Natural infrastructure, green infrastructure works the worst the day it's built and it just keeps getting better over time. And we start making those arguments and how many jobs can be employed in the, in the restoration sector, and not just in you know, laying asphalt someplace, then you know, we were in the discussion. And so we created a whole coalition, created a whole website, and uh, you know, pounded on this for years and then came to Congress with different ideas about things that we thought should be defined as infrastructure in this bill. And luckily, Congress and the administration took most of those suggestions. Good, good. Yeah, I'm happy to hear that. Let's talk about some of your, so on the website, the TRCP website, your work is split into habitat and clean water, sportsmen's access, and outdoor recreation economy. So I've kind of built off of those, but it sounds like you all have um, other ways of, of dividing up your work as well. But under Habitat and Clean Water, I want to ask you about some of these uh, issues that you all advocate for. One of them is the Farm Bill. I don't know a ton about the Farm Bill. I've, I've read up on it a little bit, but I'd love for you to kind of explain to me how this thing is structured and how it how it has evolved, what we can expect from the next revision, which is 2023 um, what what kind of work are you guys doing on the farm bill? So the farm bill is the nation's single largest source of conservation funding. It is six billion dollars a year, and uh, it, it covers about a hundred. I mean, if you think about how the the acreage in America, we have about six hundred forty million acres of public lands. A lot of those are in Alaska. And we have about 900 million acres that are in farm, pasture, grassland, or you know, woodlands. And of those, about 140 million acres are enrolled in some sort of farm bill conservation program. And that may be, uh, the way the farm bill works is it's all incentive-based. So it's not like the Clean Water Act, which is you know, basically you know, telling you what you can't do. The farm bill is giving you incentives to do the right thing, like take very marginal lands out of production and put them into conservation. And it will it basically makes it worth your while from a monetary standpoint to do that. And so you have, you know, and you, somebody who wants to go to their website, they can you know, go to trsp.org and you know, search farm bill. And we have a whole site that explains, you know, different programs in that farm bill. But you know, typically, you know, they'll run from something like the Conservation Reserve Program, which covers about you know, 25, give or take, million acres in this country. And those are typically 10-year contracts. So you have some land on your farm, 
and you have like really good corn or soybean, you know, areas. And then you have other areas that you know are not so good. They may fail every two or three years, maybe too dry, too wet, you know, whatever. Those are the ones that we want to get enrolled into conservation programs because they don't really make sense from an agricultural standpoint, other than the fact that if they fail, you're going to get a basically a bailout from the crop insurance program. Mm -hmm. But if you put them into conservation, you get a payment up front. And then you know, you basically, you know, those become, you know important areas for wildlife habitat. They're often along streams, so they become buffers for water quality. A lot of landowners have been creative, and if they put a bunch of land in the conservation reserve program, they also can lease those lands out for better hunting. And you just have a much more, you have a lot of pollinators there, which helps things you're trying to grow. So it's something, it's a real win-win. It's a win winner for the farmer. It's a winner for the public, because you're not subsidizing marginal acres. Instead, you're subsidizing something that's good for the country, which is habitat, water quality, wildlife, outdoor recreation. Right. And a bunch of these farmers are leasing that land for hunting and for other activities. So they're not only are they getting a payment for, you know, from the you know, federal government for putting it into the conservation reserve program, but they're also getting it from, you know, leasing it for other uses, which are only made possible by the fact that they're just not row crops anymore. You think about things like soybeans and you know, corn, and they're, they're essentially biological deserts. I mean, there is not much that's in there that wants to use them. And you have some farm country that's gone to a more regenerative agriculture. But when you have, you know, basic commodity prices like we're seeing today, which are insanely high, there is a real incentive to move things out of, you know, environmental practices or conservation and into just as many acres you can row crops because you're going to make a bunch of money. And so we just have to make sure that these conservation programs in the farm bill are set up in a way that you know the landowner can use them and make money from long term. And you know, it's not just tenure contracts like conservation reserve program. You are like permanent easements on some of these, like for wetlands reserve and grasslands reserves and things like that. That you have areas that you know are never going to be that productive and but are really important ecologically. You can get basically get a life for, forever easement on those and get a big chunk of money up front and uh, then go and focus on the rest of your farm. And you don't have to provide public access, but that's another incentive that you can enroll yeah. in, right? So TRCP in the 2008 Farm Bill, you know, sort of championed and created a program known as, at that time, was called Open Fields. Now it's called the Voluntary Public Access Habitat Incentives Program. And it's a you know, voluntary program. It's a you know, $50 million in the last Farm Bill that goes out to the states you know, for grants. And those states then negotiate, you know, landowner deals. So you have a place like Montana or Kansas, they have extensive what we call walk-in programs. And those are basically you know, private lands that have been opened by that private land or to the public for public hunting and fishing. And so the voluntary public access program in the farm bill expanded that significantly. And uh, you know, it's been great. And we want to see that expanded the next one. And one of the cool things that it did was in states like Massachusetts, Connecticut, Pennsylvania, that never really had those types of programs, there was now all of a sudden federal money to do them, and it made it in their interest, so they created those programs. And since that was created in the 2008 Farm Bill, we've had you know, several million acres of private land open to public hunting and fishing. Now, the lander also gets a payment out of this, but they also get, you know, the state assumes liability. Mm. So if you're out there and you fall in a ditch and you break your leg, yeah, you, you're not going to sue the landowner. And, you know, again, the state takes on that liability. So it's, again, it's a program that works and landowner has a lot of control about how many people they let in, when they let them in. So it's just not a free for all. Okay. I was going to say, is it kind of like the right to roam 
in Great Britain, but it sounds like a little bit different. A little bit different. I mean, yeah. this uh, again, this is voluntary. It's not, you know, the right to roam is, I think, that's part of British law, if I understand correctly. I think so. so this is something where, you know, this is private land. If people want to, they want to keep you off it, they can. But we want to just create some incentives that, you know, they can let folks on there, not have to worry about liability. And just another you know, way of them staying on that land and keep it from being fragmented. So they can, you know, sort of piggyback all these different payments from whatever they're getting from, you know, conservation reserve program, the voluntary public access program, and maybe they're doing you know, something else on top of that. You know, you know, that all is, you know, sort of adds up to something. They can keep the farm. They can pass it down to their kids. Yeah. What in what ways do you think the farm bill is not performing well or you would like to see it improve? Well, listen, I think that there is, you know, it's, the farm bill is only as good as its implementation. And there are always challenges when you're dealing with this many acres, you know, and, and the agencies have been sort of gutted from the staff for the past several years. So they're the process of, you know, sort of staffing back up. But, you know, like folks, just like technical assistance, helping the landowners navigate these fairly complex programs, especially if you're thinking about piggybacking multiple programs on one farm. I mean, listen, you've got to have a PhD in farm economics to deal with this sometimes. So yeah. the technical assistance component of this is critical. And I think that's one place that's been lacking and needs to be boosted up. I think just about another one is just we don't have enough money in the program. Six billion sounds like a lot. There is twice as much demand for farm bill programs from landowners as there is money to enroll them. Wow. And so what we're advocating for right now is a doubling of the farm bill program. And okay, it's another $6 billion a year, which is real money, but you're going to save money on marginal acres that fail and have to get paid for and get bailed out through the crop insurance program. Yeah. You're going to get a stronger outdoor recreation economy. If climate is your goal, this is the single most important thing you can do to basically suck carbon out of the atmosphere and into the soil is have more land and conservation. Oh, by the way, it's also great for hunting and fishing, water quality, you name it. So we think we can make the public case that this is a very wise investment of public funds, because you're never going to take you know, the most productive acres out of production. I mean, it may be someplace you will, but generally you won't. What you're going to be doing is taking these marginal acres out, which may be great wildlife habitat, but are never going to be great commodity you know, grounds. Mm. Yeah, I'm a big advocate of those sort of incentive programs over the over the alternative. Uh, they seem to be the most effective and the most uh, American, for lack of a better word, <laughs> where there's overlap with the farm bill. Um, and some of your other work is is your focus on the Colorado River watershed and and or I should say the Colorado River and its various watersheds and and water quality. I'm looking right now at the Roaring Fork River, which drains two miles away from me into the Colorado, and this is a something that I'm trying to understand better uh, for my own personal life and for my professional life. Is how does this entire water water cycle function and what's what's affecting its uh, its health? Y'all are kind of tackling this from a 10,000 foot uh, purview in terms of climate change resilience, water use, um, the farm bill and its various effects on, on water quality. Can you walk me through TRCP's advocacy for Colorado River health? So, yeah, we're looking at the 10,000 foot level. We're also right down in the weeds on this one, too. Mm. I mean, our water director, Alex Funk, is... You know, part of the team of nonprofits that are really in the ditches and you know figuring out what it is we need to do state by state. I mean, you have uh, you know Western water law is you know complex, and it's all based on the prior appropriation doctrine. So first in time, first in right, 
Yeah. And we have the problem is we have granted way more water rights to folks than there is water in the rivers. And as a result, you know, and obviously, you know, historically, I mean, even things like in-stream flows were not considered beneficial uses of water in a lot of the Western states. So we've been late to the game in terms of you know, making sure these are functioning rivers long term. And, you know, sort of discouraging wasteful water practices upstream that could be watering your lawns, you know, it could be, you know, flood irrigation as opposed to much more precise irrigation. There are a bunch of things that are done because they've been done historically, but they're still done that don't need to be done anymore, really can't be done at a time of scarcity, which was what we're facing right now. You look at the water levels on Lake Powell, uh, Lake Mead. I mean, we have been in a long-term drought that doesn't show any signs of abating and it gets lower every year. So Congress passed a drought contingency plan for the Colorado a couple of years ago, which finally you know, sort of put some teeth behind if the river levels reach a certain level, then there's gonna be forced you know, shared sacrifice throughout that system. And you have to have things like that. And we have to be smarter about where we're thinking about development. We have to do things like reusing water. We can't be building a bunch more golf courses that require a ton of water. You know, we can't just expand subdivisions endlessly. And I think that, you know, it's, it's one of the most complicated and it's way beyond me from the technical standpoint. But luckily, we have people a lot smarter than me that run this program for us, along with other groups. And this is an area where you know, the hunting and fishing community you know, Trout Unlimited, TRCP, works incredibly well with more of the mainstream environmental community, like, you know, the Audubon Society, EDF, you know, groups like that, because it really takes everybody, you need all smart, many smart people in the room as you can to get this thing right. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we have to forge alliances with some of the places like the, the West Slope in Colorado, they're getting dewatered to support growth in the front range. Yeah. And so, you know, it's untraditional allies in this, but uh, things like the Farm Bill provide you know, some solutions. You know, there's a program in the Farm Bill called the Equip Program that can be used for things like modernizing irrigation systems so that you can you know, use a lot less water, get just as much, if not more, production out of your crops and send a lot more water downstream. And those are the kind of win-wins that we're really trying to find. And Farm Bill is going to be huge for you know, developing some of those. It's so complex, but innovation like you're saying in, in terms of uh, irrigation technology and and things like that is certainly one approach it also seems that um we have to be realistic about population growth and development as you're also saying i mean um i the country that i live in is sort of constrained by topography we can't expand that much more but um there's still a lot of pressure on these natural resources and um to clarify for the listeners what Witt was saying, uh, most of the water that falls in Colorado falls on the western side of the mountains, and uh, the population growth is happening in, in Denver and on the Front Range on the eastern side of the mountains, and so a lot of the water that should be draining downstream west in the Colorado River is being rerouted to the Front Range for, for that population, so it's a bit of a conundrum. Um, let's see, Witt. The next... The next thing, I'm sorry to kind of go one by one, but there's so many things you guys are interested in, and I want to kind of get your thoughts on, on a few things while I have your time. Uh, the next issue I wanted to ask you about is the North American Grasslands Conservation Act. Where are we with that, and um, what's the next step for that act? So the you know, grasslands are one of the most endangered ecosystems we have in this country. And that could be you know, the tall grass prairies of Oklahoma all the way up to the sagebrush steppe in Wyoming. 
but these are critical. They're ecologically incredibly diverse. And if you look at the decline of birds in this country, nowhere has been greater than in grasslands habitats. So a lot of that has been, you know, the result of you know, what we just talked about in terms of the you know, rapacious incentive to just grow more corn and soybeans. And so a lot of grasslands have been turned into row crops. More grasslands have been impacted by, you know, invasive species. You think about things like cheatgrass in a bunch of the West, it comes in there, it's not native, it burns. This is not a system that's used to burning like in the sagebrush, you know, step. And, uh, you know, that is incredibly problematic. So there are threats from all sides. And one of the ways we got wetlands, you know, basically the loss of wetlands turned around in this country was through the passage of something called the North American Wetlands Conservation Act, which gives out grants every year uh, to, you know, wetland for wetland restoration, protection, and uh, been incredibly successful. Those grants are matched by non-federal sources. And it's about, you know, somewhere in that 50, $60 million a year. What we're trying to do is create a grasslands equivalent to the North American Wetlands Conservation Act so that we have this pot of federal money that would be matched as well that would go for grassland conservation. And that could be in Wyoming and sagebrush country, or it could be in Oklahoma and tall grass prairie country. But it's just recognition this is incredibly important you know, ecosystem that is under severe threat. And uh, you know, I think the same mechanics that helped us bring back wetlands or at least slow the decline of wetlands can be used here. And that's largely based on partnership model where you have groups like Pheasants Forever or Ducks Unlimited or Wild Turkey Federation out there working with individual landowners or even working with federal land management agencies to restore and protect those key habitats. And this is the model to get that done. It's been introduced in the house. We expect a Senate companion to be introduced shortly. And we hope that this is one of those things given the popularity of the wetland side that uh, can pass, you know, in the not too distant future. Would that be in your hope? Would that be during the current administration, or is there not enough time? Oh, I think there's enough time. You know, I think that you know, if, if something is shows to be bipartisan, it makes a lot of sense, has a track record success, and we can show this a track record success with the wetland side. Then I think that you know these are the kind of things that people look for wins, and in a Congress and an administration, a political environment where wins are hard to come by, you know, people gravitate towards the things that are bipartisan that can pass. And we've seen that, you know, I can give you a half dozen different examples for the last couple of years, including a little bill we just had called the Mapland Act that passed last week or the week before, is, you know, these are the areas that Congress and you know, Republicans and Democrats can come together around. And so I, I remain optimistic. Of course, working in DC, you have to be an optimist or else you just go jump off a bridge. So. <laughs> The Mapland Act is exciting. I've been following this. Essentially, uh, this is a move to digitize public records so that folks can can understand areas of public access, um, delineations, easements, things like that. These would all be accessible digitally with your uh, GPS or your, your app. I use um, Onyx, one of the more popular hunting GPS apps, and it has completely... Uh, changed the game, allowing people to get into backcountry, into areas that they otherwise may not have understood how to access. So this is unlocking, I don't know how much more land for people to be able to find. Yeah, in fact, you mentioned Onyx, and this project goes back several years to what we did with Onyx that identified landlocked public lands. So if you look at how development you know, occurred in the West, a lot of it is checkerboard pattern. 
where checkerboard between public lands and private lands. And that was a result of basically the railroads coming through and you know, grants to towns, grants to the railroads. And, uh, but the, the end result is that today in this country, we have about 16 and a half million acres that are owned by the public that the public can't get access to without just asking permission to walk through the private land's property. And it's, you know, a lot in the old days, private landowners probably say sure, but now a lot more of those are big no trespassing signs coming up and it's a lot more contentious. But uh, so of this, you know, we looked at the 16 and a half million acres, great majority of which are in the Rocky Mountain Western states, Wyoming, Montana, you know, states like that. And we'll figure out, okay, what can we do about this? So one thing we did was, you know, we passed the Great American Outdoors Act. And I say we, I mean the broad community. And that made full funding for the Land and Water Conservation Fund of $900 million a year and permanent funding for it. So in other words, it doesn't have to be subject to the whims of congressional appropriations every year. That's going out there. And about $25 million of that every year has to be used for projects that expand access. So maybe in the old days, we would go and look at like a giant timberland acquisition. The timberland was going to you know, sell their land. We didn't want to see it developed. We would do a multi, multi-million dollar project to acquire that and put it into a national forest. And those projects are incredibly worthy. But maybe another way of looking at how to spend those dollars would be look at a single section of 640 acres someplace that if you basically even just do a conservation or an access easement on that property, you can open up 10,000 acres of national forest behind it. So, you know, it's going to change the way we think about how we spend these funds, this land and water conservation fund. Then the other part of it, too, was in part of this project with Onyx, our team and the Onyx team discovered that Forest Service has got someplace around 37,000 negotiated access easements throughout the West or throughout the country. They only have about 5,000 of those actually digitized so the public knows about them. The rest of them are sitting in cardboard boxes in the basement of some district ranger office someplace. And you know, staff turns over over time. They don't even know they have them a bunch of the time. So wow. the lander may come in, put up a gate. Forest Service doesn't know to say, hey, you can't do that. And so we have all this access potentially that may be belong to the public, but we don't know about it. And even the agencies don't know about it. So we went to the Forest Service and you know, the BLM and basically said, hey, how come you don't digitize this stuff? And their response is, well, in our current budgets, it would take us about 20 years to have this fully digitized. Oh so we're like, all right, screw that. We're going to pass a bill out of Congress, give you the resources you need to get this done within two years. And so that's what just passed a couple of weeks ago. It's on its way to the White House for signature right now. But again, you know, this has got huge bipartisan support. I think it passed the House 414 to nine. Uh, you can't pass a resolution on motherhood and apple pie for a 414 to nine vote. So, but again, it's just one of these things that it makes sense regardless of what side of the aisle you're on. And so, you know, that's heading out and it's, Again, it's not a huge deal, but it's going to be, if, if you're using your Onyx, you're going to have a lot more data on there coming up soon than you've had in the past. No, yeah, that is a, that is a big deal. I, you know, from an individual sportsman and women point of view, this is a great thing, right? Especially if you live near one of these areas where all of a sudden you've got new opportunities. If I can play devil's advocate, uh, is there any argument against this being like, well, we have these lands that currently aren't pressured by public hunting. Let's leave them alone, et cetera. Have you heard those arguments? Oh, sure. We hear it. I mean, but yeah. mostly it's, it's pretty disingenuous, usually coming from a landowner who basically has all this public land that is essentially private right now yeah. because nobody can get to it. 
they're not paying taxes on it. They're getting all the benefits out of it. And so I, it's like, okay, I hear what you're saying, but I don't have a whole lot of sympathy on that one. Because yeah. especially if the public already has purchased an access easement in there, we ought to damn well be able to use it. So I know about it. And honestly, I think long-term, this is going to reduce conflict because to the extent that you and I and anybody else is using these devices, know where we can and cannot go. I think we're going to be you know, trespassing unintentionally a lot less of the time than we may be right now. Mm. Because we may see a road that crosses a ranch and think we can go across that, but we can't. Or maybe you know, we can, but we don't know. And I just think that this is long-term, everyone's going to benefit from this because let's, let's put the facts on the table and know where we do have access, know where we don't, where we don't, we can go and try to negotiate a new easement. Yeah, they're our lands. We own them. Yep. So, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And then you mentioned the uh, corner crossing issue. So, so, yeah, you would think that it'd be possible to hop from one corner to another because you wouldn't touch any of those lands in between. But the way that this has been interpreted by states in the West is that the airspace above that corner is private. And hence, if you hop above it, you're going to bust through private airspace, and therefore you are trespassing. Now, it had never really been tested because it was just a big can of worms, uh, but now it's been tested. In Wyoming, you know, some hunters came in from Missouri and decided they were going to basically make an example of this, did it, got themselves arrested. And, uh, you know, it's gone to court. It just got moved over to federal court. And we're going to see how it goes. I mean, I mean, there is, you know, again, I'm not a legal scholar. I'm not sure how it's going to break out. It seems to me it makes sense. But again, I'll just wait and find out. We're not, we're not, you know, filing an amicus brief or anything like that on this. We'll let the courts figure it out. I mean, we've tended to veer toward the more incentive-based incentives for getting into opening up public private land for the public use. And I hate to sort of create, you know, sort of this deep division, but if the law is the law and this is what it is, then great. You and I will probably benefit from it at some point. Would the hope be that that airspace definition would change or there would be a corner easement? Like what's the best outcome here? Yeah, I think the federal side is that there was uh, some old federal laws that prohibit blocking, you know, private land blocking, you know, upward public land. And I think that, you know, the corner crossing, that at least the advocates for more access believe that the corner crossing is, you know, those, you know, the current standards in the West that the airspace belongs to the landowner will fall because of the right to access other public lands. I think this was originally like grazing accesses that you had some, you know, some, you know, lands trying to cut off other people who have legal grazing rights behind. But again, I'm not a lawyer. I'm not following it all that closely, but a lot of people are, and it's going to, if it, you know, that corner crossing becomes allowed, it's going to open up a lot more land for access, certainly. What I also think it will do is create a lot more incentives for landowners to come to the table and say, okay, let's talk about a land swap. Because they've been able to enjoy all these public lands for free for a very long time. And if they can't do that anymore, they don't want people wandering around in between their sections, then the best thing to do is, okay, I'll trade you these three sections for these three sections. So you have contiguous public lands and then contiguous private lands. That checkerboard pattern. I think that, yeah, and I think you'll start seeing a demise of the checkerboard patterns, which in my mind is a good thing. Yeah, that's interesting. I didn't know that it was because of the railroad development that that shaped, but that kind of makes sense. Um, With chronic wasting disease, man, I have not covered this on the podcast, but uh, I've been looking for someone who can speak intelligently about this. uh, (laughs) I've hunted whitetail in... Uh, Texas, Tennessee, hunted in Colorado now, haven't f- 
felt the effects firsthand. I've never uh, seen a deer or killed a deer with chronic wasting disease, but I'm very well aware of the threat. Uh, can we talk about what that is and sort of the disease vector um, that's that's affecting our deer herd right now? Yeah. So I, I honestly think that chronic wasting disease is the single largest threat to hunting in this country wow. because hunting is a 40 to $50 billion a year industry. 80% of hunters are deer hunters. And uh, if all of a sudden something happens to make the public afraid of hunting white-tailed deer, then you know that is a collapse. Uh, and it couldn't be more than white-tailed, it could be elk, it could be mule deer, moose, they all get chronic wasting disease. So I just think that this has been you know, poo-pooed by a lot of folks that have very vested interests in poo-pooing it. Whereas you know, I think that for those of us that grew up hunting whitetails like I did up in the Adirondacks in New York State and have hunted them in other places as well, uh, this is a huge threat. So cr basically chronic wasting disease is the same as mad cow disease, the same as scrapey. They're all prion diseases. There is no vaccine, there is no cure. And the danger here is that they jump the species barrier, like mad cow disease did, and jumps from you know, deer to humans. And you know, there's a bunch of research going on, and I think you know, most of the science you talk to feel there is a very real threat of this happening. Wow. Now, you also have other, you could jump from you know, deer to cattle. It could jump from deer to you know, other species that you know, have a, you know, more of a monetary value. Uh, you could have, you know, if it's, you know, the threat of that could be enough that if I'd say the EU were to look at US and say, we don't want it over here. Norway got it and, and they had to nuke a big herd of reindeer, you know, several thousand animals to get it out. And, you know, there is a ban on, you know, basically importation of agricultural projects from CWD positive areas in certain European countries. Now, if the EU were to adopt that, and right now, CWD is in about 30 states in the U.S., probably more than that, because they're just starting to do testing again. They didn't test a lot during the pandemic. But, you know, that covers a lot of agriculture country, too. And so what happens if agricultural products from the U.S. can't be shipped into the EU because it's in a CWD-positive area? I mean, we're just playing with fire here. And, so it's, yeah. 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 Uh, real quick to, to define this a little, the, the prions... It's essentially, it's not a virus or a bacteria, it's a deformed protein uh, that's a result of this disease, and a deer could carry it for a long time without dying. They could die, and it could persist in the environment um, for a decade. It's highly transmissible. It's 100% fatal, we think, right? 100%, um, yep. It's terrifying, and it's getting moved around the country like crazy, largely because of the captive deer industry, which is kind of a gross thing that a lot of people, I don't think, know about, right? No, you're exactly right. And, uh, you know, so the captive deer industry has exploded in recent years. And this is the reason we're seeing this huge spread in CWD, because there is so much money in basically growing misfit giant bucks that, you know, and, you know, you have both, you know, listen, my, I don't care about like a big 10,000 acre preserve in Texas that has high fences. I mean, you get in one of those things, it's pretty danged wild. You know, what I care a lot more about are these shooter facilities, you know, where you have, you know, you have farms that basically grow, you know, just mutant deer, you know, through genetic manipulation, through steroids, through, you know, you know all sorts of other things. And then they ship them to shooting facilities where, some person who doesn't want to put in the time and the effort to hunt ethically someplace goes out, you know, pays their 20,000 bucks as it might be 
and uh, goes out in the morning and sits there and his guy says, Ooh, look, coming over the hill. In the meantime, on the other side of the hill, a truck is pulled up, pushed this deer out, and it wanders over the hill, barely able to lift its head because of the you know, grotesque thing that's on his head. And it staggers out and Hunter shoots it, has it on its wall in a week in yeah. you know, Wall Street office. And it's just, in, in my mind, you know, it's, a, uh, it's everything that hunting should not be. You're picking and off something that hunting gives much. hunting a terrible name. Yeah, yeah, it's gross. I mean, these, they're breeding these deer for atypical antlers, drop tines, incredible mass, and, and they're just, like you said, they're freaks of nature that, not of nature, actually, they're um, unnatural, uh, not a deer that most of us would, I think, be interested in hunting, aside from the, you know, the folks who are interested only in trophies. But, um, man, what can we do about the captive deer industry? So, I mean, one thing is, you know, I mean, there are some practical things. Uh, we could ban the interstate movement of live deer. A lot of you know, states already prohibit live deer moving in and out of their borders, but nationwide, that's not the case. And so you're still having these basically buses of deer moving all around, you know, swapping genetics. Yeah. And, you know, so and that's one thing. I mean, states on their own internally could you know, ban the movement of live deer. And if you were to do something like that, then, you know, that dramatically you know, decreases the problem and the threat of it getting out. You can't move. I mean, I killed a buck this year in Texas around Thanksgiving, and I couldn't drive that carcass to Colorado. I could yep. have deboned it, taken out the, the brain matter, spinal tissue, everything where those prions are found, um, and taken that that meat across state lines. But it's a lot more dangerous to be transporting live deer than dead deer in my mind. Big time. And, uh, you know, the dead deer, I mean, it's, first of all, it's very much concentrated the, the prions in, you know, the brain tissue and organs and, you know, spinal fluids, things like that. So if you were to, you know, debone your deer or something like that, there's really not a whole lot of an issue. If it's positive, I wouldn't eat it anyway, then you get it tested. But, you know, and that's another problem we have is there's just not enough testing going on. So it's ridiculous that, you know, if I take a deer in and get it checked, I don't hear for a couple of weeks. I mean, meantime, if I've taken it to a processor, I've paid my money, I've gotten it back, and then I find out I got to pitch the thing. You know, so we have to come up with a you know, much more robust testing system. Ideally, something that you as a hunter, like a pregnancy test or something, you know, could just, you know, stick someplace and comes out blue, then you don't eat the damn thing. That'd be great. Yeah. So, I mean, there's a bunch of stuff we can do in terms of testing and letting folks know if the animal is contaminated. But then the movement of deer, I think, is by far the biggest one. And primarily the issue is live deer. I mean, I do the same thing. I mean, if you want to take it to you shoot a deer in Texas, you take it to a Texas process or get a process there. Fine. Yeah. If you want to do it yourself, you bone it out. You just bring the meat. You can do that. So, you know, I, I do that now. And, you know, I don't think that's a huge inconvenience. And I'd much rather do that and see this thing spread because... You know, it's technically possible that you shoot a deer in Wisconsin, which is overrun with chronic wasting disease, and drive back to New Jersey and it, dump it in the landfill or out in the ditch behind your house. You know, you are inadvertently spreading the disease there. But it's the live deer transport that is the biggest problem. There are things like, you know, I think there's a herd certification program at the Department of Agriculture. So in their effort to stop the spread of chronic wasting disease, certain farms can be certified as, you know, clean under the herd certification program. And then you basically get, if you do that and you're so certified, then if it pops up in your farm, then basically the taxpayers pay to have your you know, farm, all the deer eliminated and that farm you know, shut down. 
Now, I mean, you could argue whether taxpayers ought to be bailing out somebody who's doing this stuff, which is so ripe for you know disaster. But I'd rather have that happen than see have this guy all of a sudden get it and then just try to hide the deer by dumping them out in the woods behind the facility. But the herd certification program is so weak that you know the, the about half the cases that popped up, I think it was two years ago, new cases came from certified facilities that were certified as clean. And wow. so it has basically become almost greenwashing. Uh, you get certified like this, you get the protection of indemnity by the federal government, but you're really not doing anything that different and you're still you know, part of the problem. So that has to be completely redone and made much stronger than it is today. And then finally, I think we just have to make shooting animals behind, you know, in fences uncool. Yeah. You know, so that, that's what you know, I, was say. Yeah, I mean, you know, that, you know, instead of somebody saying, whoa, that's an awesome buck, they say, you are a mutant for shooting that thing. Yeah. Where'd you get it? And then, they, yeah, I mean, that's, that's the only thing I can think of. I'm not one for public shaming, but uh, man, I would shame someone for doing something for participating in that and, and let them know why it's uh, why it's a problem and why it's just lame. You know, and plus like, we have to get, I mean, the hunting industry has got to be a part of this. So, I mean, we need all the, you know, you know, Sitka, First Light, Federal, you know, all the other, you know, the best pro others to just say, you know what, that this is not what hunting is about. And let's, let's end the obsession with giant heads and talk much more about the experience of getting out there. You know, maybe you get a deer, maybe you don't, maybe it's a really nice one. Maybe it isn't. It's going to eat great either way. Maybe probably better if it isn't. And uh, celebrate what hunting, you know, always has been about, but it's been perverted from in too many places today. A lot of it's just education, right? Like um, when I was growing up, it was uh, transportation of of your your boats and watercraft. Moving the zebra mussels around was a big issue, still is a big issue. And it's just billboards and, and the hunting industry and people and, and magazine ads letting you know, like, don't move these things around. You're contributing to a huge problem. So I think sportsmen and women are, are pretty well aware of chronic wasting disease and the threats, and, and hopefully we'll see um, a turn there. Well, I hope so. But there's a there's a big disinformation industry out there oh, yeah. that basically, you know, the I mean, one of the ways you sort of avoid, you know, if you pops up someplace, what you don't want to do is, for example, feed because that congregates animals, even, even if there are no high fences around and it's unnatural and they swap spit and, you know, that's how it can spread. So you have a lot of states like New York and others that don't have it that have banned any sort of feeding, including salt licks and other things like that. But you have supplement makers that you're fighting and claiming that CWD is not a big problem because they don't want to impact their bottom line of selling all this stuff that congregate deer. And, uh, you know, there's a cottage industry of these folks out there and people listen to them and, you know, fake news is all over the place these days and CWD is right up there with the best of them. I saw an Instagram post recently where someone was feeding elk. There were a bunch of big old bull elk. Um, in their backyard and somewhere on the front range. And uh, the first comment was from Colorado Parks and Wildlife saying, where is this? <laughs> I was like, go get them. You know, yeah. Can't be it's doing good. that. Well, I mean, we're going to have a situation outside of Jackson right now because, you know, CWD is now in, you know, the, you know, the sort of Teton, you know, the elk refuge north of Jackson and where they basically have these, I think there are 19 designated elk feedlots around the state of Wyoming. And CWD is getting in there you know, it is, you know, you're going to have to do something different and you can't congregate all these you know, animals together and not expect disease to spread. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, what else is on your desk right now? What, what other major things are you guys working on or you want to see 
in the next year? Boy, I mean, I, I, again, we talked a little bit about climate. I just think there's real opportunity there. If they do something, you know, soft on climate, I think that, you know, things like the, you know, the land and water side of the climate solution is an area that's ripe for Republicans and Democrats to come together on and pass. I mean, I think that the controversy lies in reducing emissions, you know, moving away from oil and gas, uh, moving away from coal, moving to renewables, and just what speed you do that. Nobody, you know, argues the fact that if we have, you know, better managed forests, more land and conservation, you know, more carbon being taken out of the air, you know, that's not a good thing. So I think where there's a huge opportunity moving ahead, you know, on, on that issue. And so we're, you're focusing a fair bit on that right now. At CWD, we just talked about that. We've got a CWD bill in that's just passed the House with an overwhelming vote. It would, you know, it greatly expand the money for states to do testing. It would give a lot more money going to the federal research agencies to really figure out how this is spread and what we could do potentially to stop it. And we need that. It's not prohibitive. It doesn't, you know, stop the interstate movement of deer. We would love that, but we had to get something that everybody could agree on. And so this is really about, you know, surveillance, testing, and research. But it'll be a $70 million a year program, which is real money when it goes out to the states that have been basically doing this on shoestring budget. So I think those are some of the things, uh, you know, on the fisheries side, you know, we have uh, a big program on forage fish conservation. You know, so the, we're really talking about the bottom of the food chain in the oceans and species like menhaden, which is called bunker in the Northeast, called pogey in the Gulf, but basically everything eats it. And there is a big reduction fishery that goes out and scoops them up and grinds them into pellets for fish food or oils or, you know, pet food supplements. And, uh, you know, what we've been doing, we managed to do on the Atlantic side was to change the entire you know, structure of that fishery. The one where instead of managing it to see how many menhaden you can kill before you crash the stock, let's figure out how much the ecosystem needs. That'd be striped bass, bluefish, weakfish, whales, eagles, osprey. And based on that, how many can you take out without hurting all these other species? Okay. And so we got that accomplished in the Atlantic. We got a nice reduction in the reduction fishery. And now we're trying to do the same thing in the Gulf of Mexico, where it's twice as large a fishery as in the Atlantic. Are fish so, oil uh, supplements prices going up now? Uh, not that I know of, but I don't really track them very closely. <laughs> but I just know this is an incredibly low value fishery. You know, but it is the second largest fishery in America, wow. next to Alaskan pollock which is what your filet of fish is if you go to McDonald's. Yeah. But in this one is nobody eats them in Hayden. It gets shipped to Canada for aquaculture salmon. It gets turned into oils for fish oil pills and things like that. Mm. And in the meantime, it suppresses a multi-billion dollar recreational fishery for striped bass in the Atlantic coast, for tarpon, sea trout, redfish in the Gulf, a lot of other species. Everything eats Manhattan. And they're filter feeders. So in a place like the Chesapeake Bay, where you have real water quality problems, you don't want to be scooping out all these fish because you need them to help clean the water. Same thing in the Gulf of Mexico. We have massive dead zones from polluted water coming down the Mississippi River, coming out of Florida, and a lot of other places. So it's another one that just makes a ton of sense on all levels, but it's a tough political fight. Yeah. Do you get uh, some time to get out and enjoy these resources that you're protecting? 
uh, as much as I can, not as much as I would like. I'd always do a week of deer camp in the Adirondacks every November. Oh, cool. Uh, which is yeah, phenomenal. I love that. And then, you know, I generally, one of the cool things I get to do is take our donors, you know, on some trips around that, you know, so I take a, may take them to go you know, catch bonefish in the Bahamas sometimes or go turkey hunting with them. So, you know, I don't complain because my wife thinks I get plenty of opportunities to get out there. Yeah. But uh, you know, the cool thing about being in this job is that, you know, and one day you can work on a chronic waste and disease in deer, another day on farm bill and pheasants, another day on, day on wetlands and ducks, and or another day on in Manhattan and striped bass. And so we have our, you know, hands in all of these issues and occasionally I get to go and, you know, experience them and, you know, get occasionally some great duck hunting down in the Gulf of Mexico, or, you know, some, I caught my first tarpon this year down in the Keys off of Florida. So, uh, no, I get, I get out there some and I love it. Good. You deserve it, man. Well, uh, I really, really appreciate your time Wit. I, you've got a supporter in me and I hope a few new supporters, uh, from this episode, you guys are doing some of the most important work out there. So thank you. Dylan, thank you for uh, having me on and for spreading the gospel. Of course, if people do want to learn more support, where should they go? Uh, go to www.trcp.org and uh, sign up. It's, our membership is free. And if you want to make a donation, you can. We have uh, actually a, we have our big you know, fundraising event in early May coming up in D.C., and we have an auction that anybody can bid on. So lots of cool trips and gear. And if you're a hunter or angler, you can never have too much gear. Is that a so, virtual thing or in person? Uh, the dinner is in person. The The auction is virtual and in person. Okay, great. Yep. Great. Well, thank you, Whit. I hope we cross paths again, and uh, I'll be following along closely on these issues. Well, thanks so much, Dylan. All right. Take care. All right. Bye-bye.